Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Hello, Donald. Glad to see you back on the History of Networking. Afternoon. Afternoon. Donald is waterless today, apparently, so he's going to get thirsty before the end of the show. <laughs> exactly. That's it's overrated. Impression. Water's it's overrated, overrated, yeah. So today we have with us a very special guest, Steve Bellavin, who is apparently sitting in front of the replica of a replica of a, an electromechanical machine that's at Bletchley Park. So I just think it's really cool that Steve joined us from Bletchley Park. That's, that's I think, is really... <laughs> I think, I think, is that or the Antarctic or something like that? But we'll... Uh, We'll do, we'll, do, we'll do Bletchley Park for now. We'll do Bletchley Park. Yeah, that's cool. One place in England I've never been, actually, and I probably should go hang out at Bletchley Park a little bit because uh, it would be a cool place to go. Um, so, Steve, why don't we just start at the beginning? You've done a lot of things. We won't talk about Usenet, but I know you've been involved in crypto and other things as well. So why don't we just start from the beginning and, and see where we go? Let's just start with where you started. Well, you know, I've been programming for more than 50 years. Uh, Did you finish? I- Writing the program? No, not quite. (laughs) Programs are never finished. You know that. Uh, But, you know, very early on, I was doing system administration, system programming. And ultimately, that's what got me into security. Uh, You know, I caught my first hackers as I was uh, working part-time as an undergrad. And I looked at their punch cards and saw what they were trying. And one I hired, the other I sent to the dean. Uh, It was a different (laughs) time. different time and place. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't know I was going to end up in security. I got into that trying to bring TCP IP networking to Bell Labs in the 1980s. Things would go wrong. You didn't have dedicated routers then. You just throw a second Ethernet card into your back to your son uh, workstation. That was your router. And things would go wrong. And when I investigated what, you know, somebody had misconfigured something, and really screwed up the network. And I said to myself, gee, what would happen if somebody did that intentionally? Oh my. And that's how I started doing security. Uh, it was sort of basically sysadmin tough stuff while I was a grad student. It was also really good dissertation avoidance uh, behavior. <laughs> fall, sometime in the fall of 1979, I would guess about October or November, I don't recall just when, got a call from a couple of grad students at Duke, Tom Truscott and Jim Ellis. And we're in the process of converting to seventh edition Unix from Bell Labs, from sixth edition. Two interesting things. First of all, seventh edition had this wonderful thing called UUCP, Unix, Unix copy, which worked over dial-up phone lines. And second, there was a modification to uh, 6th edition that Duke had used, they were running Unix before we were, to display messages at login time. The users longer than the messages a day, but you only see it once. They regretted losing that. The question is, what should replace it? And gee, we've got this network facility. So we can share these messages elsewhere. So we had a meeting at Duke, probably about eight or 10 of us. And we sketched what ultimately became the first version of Usenet. And uh, I thought this was a great sound, great idea. So I went back to Chapel Hill, where I was a grad student, and wrote a 150-line shell script. 
and you know, this was the very first version. You know, used an environment variable for the list of news groups you subscribed to, but it had multiple news groups. Only one net was going to be shared. It had cross-posting. It had lots of modern features. Well, what became the internet did all in 150 lines of shell. On the computers of the day, that was a very slow thing to run. Uh, one, another grad student at uh, Duke, uh, Steve Daniel, actually, I rewrote it in C, still missed a few important features. Steve Daniel rewrote it, and that was what became the first released version of uh, Usenet, which was announced to the world at what became the first Usenix, yeah, one of the first Usenix conferences in uh, University of Colorado at Boulder in January of 1980. And it was called, called it Usenet, Usenix, Usenix had been known as the Unix Users Group, but Bell Labs lawyers were getting persnickety about the trademark. And no one wanted to fight with them the name was changed to Usenet. <laughs> uh, rather than the surprise of people who attended the previous meeting, oh, the name of the organization with that has suddenly changed, unknown to us. So partly as a riff on that, and partly because we thought it might become the official network, if you will, of Usenix, we named it Usenet. And those days, a user group for a... Uh, operating system was also a place to uh, swap software modifications. So he said, great, not only can we distribute news, we can also distribute patches and new software this way. So we had all of that in mind and it was announced to the world again in January 1980. It's worked over dial-up modems at 300 bits per second, not 300 megabits, not even 300 kilobits, but 300 bits per second using a home-built auto-dialer that Duke had built and later uh, Chapel Hill we built our own inspired by the same one but slightly different one. Why did we have to build our own? Because you couldn't easily buy them in those days. Uh, telecommunications was just barely being deregulated and the only way to get an official one was uh, to rent one from the phone company and rent a special interface or buy a special interface from Digital Equipment Corporation or some such. But, you know, this was kind of a Skunkworks project. We didn't, have, you know, the faculty knew about this, but they weren't funding it. We had to do what we could scrounge on our own. So that was the general, that was the setup, and Duke was going to be the star of the network because they had the autodialer back when that was a very, very rare thing. Great site to have. And of course, that's the autodialer that y'all had written because you couldn't rent one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, it worked on pulse dialing. You know, if you look at a rotary dial telephone, find one in a museum or something, or your great grandparents' houses or some such, it's really, when you dial, it's interrupting the circuit, it's breaking the circuit at a rate of 10 hertz. And that brief interruption doesn't hang up. Well, you can time software. You, you can time an interruption. If you hook a relay to a proper signal line, you can break and make the circuit rapidly enough. And the timing wasn't precisely right, but there's plenty of slop in the uh, central office switches. So we use the uh, data terminal ready control line of the RS-232 serial port standard, which you normally raise to go off hook. And we just toggle the relay and it would tap out dial pulses at you know 
10 hertz. I remember with old uh, dial type telephones that instead of using the dialer, we would actually pick up, you know, just tap the dialer or tap yeah. the, 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 yeah. the, the hook yeah. just to dial the number we wanted to get to. And then when I worked on telco systems, uh, a lot of the telco systems, the, the, um, the handset that you had that you just hooked on to the 66 block didn't actually have a dial pad. So you had to actually like tap to break the circuit to get to the number you were trying to get to. Exactly. Doesn't that still work? Yeah, uh, it's, I don't know if it still works or not because I'm not sure that the telephone companies are required to support well, that any longer. I know it doesn't work on your cell phone, but I thought that was, had to be still work on any actual well, phone line. You know, first of all, actual real twisted pair phone lines are a rapidly vanishing species. Uh, you know, most people have landline phones is plugged into a box from their cable company or some such or other voice over IP. I don't know if one of these boxes is going to support pulse dialing anymore. In fact, fairly early on, uh, there was a small phone company that got FCC permission to give their customers touchtone phones so they could go rip out all of the pulse dialing equipment from their switches. Because why why do you want to support both? If to tone dialing is faster. You know, if yes, you look at the if you look at the economics of a phone switch, the dial register is there's not one dedicated one per line. I, I work I not only worked for Bell Labs and ATT Labs for more than 20 years, some of my time at Bell Labs, I was in the software engineering research department or the phone switch developers. So I got to see some of this stuff up close and personal after I was in grad school. And you know, when you go off hook, it finds a dial register to go listen to the dial pulses and a dial tone generator. This is a limited resource. You can dial faster with touch tone and therefore free up the resource more quickly. So it was in the phone company's interest to uh, get people off of pulse dialing too. Right, and the pulse dialing of course works with Stoger switches and old crossbar, old clove fabrics, the original clove fabrics, because it was actually causing the stepper motor to jump down or around one of the two, depending on how it worked. Right, and they carry this forward from the original Stoger switch, the step-by-step -step switch, the crossbar, even the electronic switching system, again, for backwards compatibility. Uh, you still needed this for a very long time. Again, I have no idea. I should dig up an old phone and plug it into a uh, white <laughs> modem box and see what happens. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> that's really cool. So that's where you got started was just being sysadmin with Usenet. So let's, I guess, chase Usenet for a little bit. How did it go? I mean, there was the original version, which you said was in what language? Yeah, the first version was in C, was in shell script. Born okay, shell. in shell script. Born, and then Born shell was also new with 7th edition uh, Unix. And I rewrote it in C. It was missing too many features that were really necessary. Wasn't configurable enough, for example. Uh, so Steve Daniel rewrote it in... Uh, rewrote it and that became a news and that's what was distributed to the world my two versions are no longer extant oh at this point 30 uh, plus years ago about yeah, about 25 years ago i looked through everything i had and no uh, that source code was long gone 
Oh, well, that's a shame, actually. Yeah. Because <laughs> oh, it'd be absolutely. cool to bring it up. It would be. It would be. Uh, you know, I know how it worked, but I, I could probably rewrite something pretty close to it, but uh, <laughs> it, no longer, it no longer exists. Yeah. So A News was out there for a while. It had multiple news groups. One of the important generalizations, any news group beginning NetDot would distribute to other sites rather than only one that would go elsewhere. And you could configure which groups went to which sites. So we could have a whole hierarchy just for the research triangle area with things that were spatially limited. Local clubs, musical offerings, used car ads, things like that. So, so it's interesting because I didn't know this started in the research triangle area, which is where I am right now. Oh, actually. okay. Yeah. So I, I didn't realize this started in Chapel Hill. Um, Chapel Hill and Durham, yeah. Well, Durham that's, that's USC, Chapel Hill. That's quite interesting because I've actually gone up there to teach a couple of classes and stuff. So that's really pretty interesting that it started in the, in this actual area. So, okay, so let's continue. So you had it all up and running. How did it grow? I mean, did a lot of people just pick it up and start? It, it grew slowly. It's one of these classic uh, exponential growth uh, issues. Uh, it started slowly, picked up. The There were two important things that happened early on, two or three very important things that happened early on. One, Tom, Tom Truscott, had done a summer internship at Bell Labs, and he got them to act as a star because they had lots of auto dialers, official ones, that was the phone company, and uh, beer budgets and so on, and they could go poll lots of sites. But the most important thing for early growth happened at uh, UC Berkeley. They were on the ARPANET. We were not. You needed a DARPA research contract to be on the ARPANET in those days. And there were mailing lists, a couple of popular mailing lists on the ARPANET, one called SF Lovers, SF Lovers, Science Fiction Lovers, the other called Humanists, the way people deal with computers. The problem that Usenet had was a chicken and egg problem. You didn't have content to attract people to connect. And without people connecting, you weren't going to get traffic generated. The ARPANET already existed. There was this existing source of traffic. And this was gatewayed by um, Marianne Horton. This was gatewayed into Usenet at Berkeley. It also ended up being a mail gateway between this anarchic, unofficial dial-up network and ARPANET, which was technically restricted. Uh, so there's suddenly connectivity that had never existed before, and there was also content. And that was one of the things that really let it start growing. You suddenly had something to point to. This became very popular. And we could just suddenly reach other people on the ARPANET who didn't have to uh, start dealing with dial-up modems and so on. So that's how it started to grow. And then I guess it just took off in terms of having multiple servers, distributing, things like that. So that must have taken a lot of rewriting of code at that well, point. Well, it was, it was never, it, architecturally, it wasn't a star. Architecturally, it was a distributed system from the very beginning. It's just that operationally, it paid for Duke to be the hub of this door because they had the auto dialer and they even arranged we'll pull you you reimburse us for our phone call. that was a little difficult a little bit of a difficult sell but again others picked up the slack first uh bell labs research and later digital equipment corporation deck deck had its own operating system 
but AT&T Bell Labs was a hugely important customer there, bought a lot of their computers. So they actually had a Unix uh, support group in deck and someone there persuaded management that it would really help their relationship with AT&T and with universities to act as a central hub. A couple of other places picked up, pick it up. So you had a lot of, you had a number of different nodes acting as central concentrators, typically places with large phone budgets or management that didn't care about phone budgets. So, you had, so it started growing very rapidly and it hit a very crucial limitation. One of the simplifying assumptions we made in A News was that there was not going to be very much traffic. Uh, <laughs> my original sure, yeah, that didn't. I'm sure my, that didn't work out very long. <laughs> my original prediction was one to two messages a day, fifty to one hundred computers maximum, and those one to two messages a day would be mostly uh, concerned with Unix system internals. And yeah, I was very wrong, which is why I don't go into traffic forecasting these days. <laughs> As a result, because we expected so little traffic, to keep track of what you read was, we only had kept the high watermark, the timestamp of the arrival timestamp of the latest article you read, which meant you, if you read stuff out of order, you'd end up rereading stuff again because it only kept, it only kept track of the contiguous high watermark and that worked when it was one to two messages a day. It didn't work when it was 20 messages a day, some of them very long. There's also some internal uh, decisions. The uh, article ID, the unique identifier for an article, was intended to be a file name in a single flat directory. Why? Well, Unix was not very good at locking. We knew there were race conditions. Why? create a file, stick it in this directory, the kernel's got its own internal lock, so we don't have to worry about it. This doesn't work when the directory gets really huge because of linear search of a directory in those days. To find a file, to add a file, to verify the file name doesn't exist. So there's system performance limits and human performance limits. So uh, Matt Glickman, then a high school student in Berkeley, and uh, Marianne Horton rewrote or wrote a new version of that news that became B News that had multiple news groups, uh, well, still had multiple news groups, but could keep track of every article you had read, more flexible header file format, uh, et implementation differences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the version of Usenet that was really scalable. A few more rewrites along the way to handle performance issues. But that was the that was the version that really grew very fast. So how hard was that rewrite? Because I'm always curious, you know, when you write a piece of software like this and you don't necessarily think about all of the implications or how it's going to be used, uh, quite often something like that sounds like it would be at the very core of the way it worked and therefore very difficult to fix. It was like it, it was a it was a it was a completely new piece of code from scratch. But the original code base wasn't very large. You know, we had a very simple uh, fixed format header, the five line header with no. The one provision we made for growth was that the first character, first byte of any message, had the letter A because it was A news. And this way, we could have other over the wire formats. And as long as it didn't begin with an A, B news could have 
I ended up looking much more like email headers with from colon lines and date colon lines and so on. We were okay. interested to the ARPANET. We'd never seen any of that stuff. Interesting. So is that, so I assume the B newsreader did use the B for the number or something like that, did version out? Uh, it actually used a version line, as I recall. They merely said, for backward compatibility, never omit the first header line as, some, as a header beginning with an A. And it, therefore, if it begins with an A, we'll parse the old header format but uh, and can even speak the old header format, but preferably use the new one. And the advantages of B News in terms of system performance in terms of user interface was so great that A News has faded away extremely rapidly. Right, right. So it's interesting too because this is an instance also of something like the um, what is it the, the theorem that you you accept a wider range of things than you send. What is yeah. that? Oh. Be uh, be liberal in what you cons- uh, accept, conservative in what you send. Right. Yeah. That's that's pretty much. This seems like it's an right. instance of that sort of thinking right. Right. in that way. But there's a really uh, there's another really interesting change in B news. They went in a direction that we deliberately thought about and rejected, and that was control messages to cancel messages, create new news groups, and so on. And although none of us, none of the original four of us, myself, Tom, the late Jim Ellis, and Steve Daniel were security people, we all had enough system administration experience to be concerned about security, and we didn't know how to secure control messages. As a result, we said, this is a dangerous thing to put in. We will not put it in. It turned out the technology that was necessary had been invented, public key cryptography. We knew about public key cryptography. We'd all seen uh, Martin Gardner's column in Scientific American describing uh, the algorithm now known as RSA. We'd even read the RSA paper, but we didn't know how to engineer it. We didn't know what key sizes were big enough, and we didn't know about certificates, though those had been invented as a bachelor's thesis at MIT, so we knew nothing of this. We said, fine, this is probably a direction to go in the future by people who know more about this stuff. Let's go move on and shift about control messages. B News had control messages, but without authentication. It turned out to be useful for managing the network when the first spam came out, someone could write a cancel bot that would just go out and send cancel messages. But of course, then you got into cancel wars where people were canceling messages to people they didn't like because it wasn't authenticated. So the problems we foresaw actually happened. But it's really interesting to speculate on what would have happened had we known a little bit more about cryptography. With what I know now, I certainly could do it. But I didn't get into cryptography until about, oh, late 1980s, when nineteen when network security was becoming my main interest. Because, so that's, yeah. Uh, so um, just thinking about, explain the control message problem so that listeners will understand it a little bit. You, it wasn't authenticated. You didn't know that the person who sent the message had the right to send that message, had the authorization to send that message. So what so, kind of messages are we talking about as being control messages? Okay. Just so that- Suppose I post something, regret it, and I want to delete it. 
Ah, okay. There was a mistake in it, or I just rethought the uh, flaming and I didn't want to do it. I want to cancel it. Well, either I should have the right to cancel it, or perhaps in a company that my sysadmin should have the right to send to cancel it, or the administrator of that news group, whoever that might be. Well, how do you verify that one of these three parties has sent the cancel message? B News cancel message just said cancel and the article ID, and it would just be deleted every place. And anybody in the world could send that. And anybody in the world did in some cases. Or mid 80s, as for a number of reasons, uh, it was what became known as the great renaming. Every news group was renamed to new hierarchies. There were moderated news groups, all kinds of things. Who had the right to create a news group? There was a pro an informal process uh, agreed upon by what became known as the backbone cabal. The sysadmins of the major star nodes that were, carry that were carrying the bulk of the long distance phone calls how do you know that a create news group message really came from a proper member of the backbone cabal and not someone who just wanted to create a new newsroom? There are a lot of different ways to abuse this process. For that matter, how do you know that a message purporting to be from me is really from me? Right. In fact, I would never see it because there's an anti-loop mechanism in there. So let's go back to when I was at UNC Chapel Hill. A message from me would begin you from the path UNC exclamation point SMB. That's the way UCP indicated path rather than SMB at UNC it was UNC bang SMB. Fine. No one would ever send to UNC a message that had UNC in the path because that would be a loop. That was an optimization. Save the phone call. Our site would reject it, but to save the phone call, you don't transmit something you think was going to be rejected. This means that if somebody forged a message from me, I would never see it. It would never reach my site. So all you would never know that somebody was sending messages in your name. Therefore, exactly. You couldn't exactly. take action. Exactly. So all kinds of abuses possible. Control messages made it worse. We know all this. You know, the original announcement said, yeah, there are these problems we know about. Let's get some experience with the net and find out where the real pain is before we uh, try to fix things. Let's yeah. let's get the system running. We knew we didn't know that much about what we were doing. Really interesting thing about the cryptography is export of cryptography was strictly regulated in those days. We knew nothing of that. Usenet was basically being distributed well below the radar anyone, any sort of management uh, capacity, anyone who would have known about this, cryptography would have been out there in the world with violation of the export laws, and the patents on RSA and on public key cryptography had not yet issued. This code could have been out there around the world before the patent is issued, and suddenly would retroactively become illegal, but the code would have been out there. It's very interesting to speculate what that would have done to internet security had that code been out there a lot earlier. Of course, I might have ended up having unpleasant discussions with the FBI about illegal <laughs> exports, but... Uh... Yeah. 
Yeah. So what's interesting about this story here is that it's yet another instance of building something, trying it in the real world, and then coming back and saying, well, that didn't work. Let's modify it. So the, the concepts of modularization and the ability to modify a system in play or in while it's being used, um, kind of a canary process, what we might say in modern data center yeah. design, uh, yeah. is very, play, plays a prominent role here. Right. We knew we didn't know what we were doing. We said, we have some good ideas. We think this is useful as is. Let's get it out there and understand what the limiting factors are. Yeah. Cool. So let's move into cryptography a little bit. How'd you get into cryptography? And and what all have you done in the world of cryptography? Because I know that's another really fascinating area. It started, uh, two roots would, one was while I was in graduate school. I went out to lunch one day and I said, hey, let me grab a book. I was eating by myself. Let me grab a book, stopped into a bookstore and saw a paperback edition of David Kahn's The Code Breakers. I said, oh, cool. That sounds interesting. Let me start reading about that. And that got me hooked on thinking about cryptography. And later uh, in the late 1980s, when I was thinking about TCP IP security because of these issues that I mentioned uh, with correctness, correct behavior, I started looking into how cryptography could be used to secure internet traffic and uh, went on from there. You know, number of things, mostly during the 90s, though, some more recent stuff. The most important thing I did in cryptography was I and a colleague at Bell Labs, a guy named Mike Merritt, came up with what's now known as PAKE, P-A-K-E, Password Agreement and Key Exchange Protocols. We knew how password guessing worked. You know, that was in Morris and Thompson's classic paper on the Unix password security. And then we looked at Kerberos, the Network Authentication and Authorization Scheme at MIT, where you used your password to get a cryptographic credential. And I said, well, gee, you're authenticating this message with your password. This means that somebody who eavesdrops on the network and picks up this message, instead of running a password guessing attack on Etsy password, could run a password guessing attack on network traffic. Gee, what can we do about it? So we talked about it and we thought about it for months. Mike had tentatively included that it was not possible to solve the problem. And he might have been right. I wasn't quite ready to give up. I went to a uh, talk. We had a lot of invited speakers, guest speakers at uh, Bell Labs. And this speaker was droning on and on. Really awful speaker. (laughs) And my mind wandered. And I wrote down the message exchange that solved the problem. Because... I had nothing else, pre-laptop, way pre-smartphone. So I had nothing else to do when my mind wandered but think. And I solved the problem. It was the first uh, strong password, uh, strong protocol for uh, password authentication way not susceptible to guessing. So, 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 don't, so, don't, so don't deny your boredom. <laughs> Run I, with it. <laughs> I tell my students that all the time now. No matter how boring my lectures are, the most original idea I ever came up with happened by sitting through a boring lecture. So come to class even if I'm boring you. <laughs> I, 
So explain that a little bit. Explain the what process was. I mean, what what is this process that you came up with there on the piece of paper? So the notion was that no message would have what's called protected by the password would have what's called verifiable plain text. You take a guess at the password and do a trial decryption, and you can't tell if your if your guess is right or wrong. So the original version. We came up with a couple of other versions that have later been cracked. That's fine. The original version is still strong. And there have been many other pakes since then with formal proofs of correctness. We tried and failed to prove our protocol correct. But the basic notion I can explain pretty simply, you know what Diffie-Hellman key exchange is? Diffie and Hellman proposed this in 1976. It's a way to exchange two large exponentials modulo some agreed upon prime if there's no act attack no attacker in the middle you'll end up with something that the two end parties can agree on a key but nobody else can in order to come up with the key otherwise you have to solve what's called this discrete logarithm problem that was and is believed to be extremely hard and is mathematically related to factoring it turns out An exponential modulo a large prime, if you pick the other parameters correctly, is going to look like a random number up to, but not including that prime. If you decrypt a message with the wrong key, you're going to get something that is a random number. So the notion is you take this Diffie-Hellman exponential and both sides encrypt it with the user's password. Now think of the poor eavesdropper. The eavesdropper guesses the, the uh, wrong password, they end up with a random number. Nothing they can do with that. If they decrypt, if they guess the right password, they end up with an exponential, but that looks like a random number. And the only way to tell the difference is to solve the discrete log problem, which is very hard. So you can't win with password guessing. It's either a random number, which does you no good, or the discrete log problem, which you can't solve. And that solved the problem. A way to have a network communication protected by a password that no one can do password guessing on. So where did that end up being used in the networking world? Can you give us technologies that that we wound up using that under? Well, there's a uh, very interesting footnote on corporate life. Uh, In accordance with Bell Labs policies at the time, we filed, received a patent on this. We published this, but AT&T at the time didn't really know how to do anything with patents other than cross-license them to other big companies or license them for lots and lots of money. I tried persuading management, let's give this away to universities, let's give this away for non-commercial use, let's get it out there, get mindshare, get code, let people understand the use cases of it. And I could not make the responsible people understand this. They understood numbers with at least seven, preferably eight significant digits. The notion of giving something away was foreign to management, to AT&T management, and later to Lucent management because at the, when AT&T spawned up Lucent, the patent ownership uh, went to Lucent. This was not a concept they could understand. So what happened was that this was not the only way to do a pick. 
People couldn't use the AT&T scheme, so they invented their own. They invented their way around it. And some of them were patented as well. So it's still impeded use. There have been some uses in the real world, not as many as I'd like, become a nice subset of uh, academic cryptography. I'd love to see it incorporated into Zoom to uh, solve the multi-party authentication problem, but there are no generally accepted multi-party pegs as opposed to a two-party peg. Maybe I have to go back and look at that, but now Zoom's announced their own cryptography roadmap, which will do authentication differently. It's still an interesting add-on that I may try to play with. No, but it's not a it's not a part of TLS or IPsec or anything like that. But did that work come out of the work that you did originally, or is that completely well, separate? There was there was a proposal. I actually yeah, TLS actually permits password authentication. There was a proposal to use a PAKE in there. I frankly don't recall what happened with that because again, the only PAKEs available at that time were patented, and the IETF will accept patents when necessary, but doesn't really like them. Uh, and, you know, TLS and its mainstream use went in a different direction with certificates. So it was never the mainstream of TLS in any event. Uh, we had all kinds of use. My favorite use, since we invented it in 1992 when cell phones weren't really a thing, was encrypted pay phones or encrypted, uh, yeah. You pick up a phone and the phones would go through this peg. You just key in a four digit pin and it's still strongly protected. And it would give you a scrambled phone call. All of these science fiction stories I'd read about keying the scramble call to your phone was now implementable with the 1991-1992 technology. Yeah. So it could have been done, but it didn't. You know, it's still a useful concept. Uh, we have some research projects going on right now where uh, one of my PhD students said, hey, a PAKE is the right way to solve this problem. So any work after cryptography in the networking realm that's interesting? Well, I, you know, I did other uh, cryptography work in the IETF, especially in IPsec. My favorite story there was the original proposal for IPsec had a sequence number. I insisted it had to be taken out because, after all, IP says you can have replicated datagrams in the network. So I fought to take it out. I won. And a long story, I eventually figured out that I was wrong and I published a paper showing why you really needed sequence numbers and integrity <laughs> protection. So the IETF threw out the original IPsec uh, standards and put developed new ones with sequence numbers and with integrity protection. So I first led the fight to take it out, then led the fight to put it back in. It was great fun. <laughs> Recent... So you were both for and against sequence numbers. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Schrodinger's sequence number. Uh, <laughs> The uh, in recent years, I've done some uh, cryptography work, especially for privacy protection, since I became a faculty member about 15 years ago. The last several years, a lot of my effort, a lot of my attention has shifted to the legal and policy side of technology, especially, but not only privacy. What do I know that lawyers and judges and legislators don't know but need to? I'll give one simple example, and I will not give the whole legal background. Under U.S. law and under British law, I won't speak for any other countries, the contents of a conversation are much more strongly protected than the metadata. But what is, from a legal perspective, what is metadata? And there's a legal definition of it that matters. 
And on the internet, it's not clear what will be legally metadata and what will be legally content. So from that 30 second description, there's a 101 page law review article with three computer scientists and a former prosecutor trying to explain enough of the technology, enough of the law, and the most important cases in internet technology where the, where the difference matters. And there are some cases where we just do not know the answer. We're just, it's not even, it's not, you can look at a specific case, but until you look at that case, you don't know if something's be content or metadata. Even sophisticated users can't necessarily tell. What would you do differently about uh, your Usenet design now that you've had a chance to? I don't know that there's any, uh, other than the cryptography, which we knew we didn't know how to do, I don't think there was very much we could have done differently with the technology of the time without a lot more foresight. There are things we would have done very differently if we anticipated the traffic growth. Yeah, that we engineered for a particular traffic level. And well, we were just very, we were just far too pessimistic. We knew we were taking shortcuts there, but we engineered for a particular load and we were gloriously wrong. That we certainly could have done differently. The cryptography, if we'd known where it was going, maybe we would have taken the time to figure it out. I don't know that we would have succeeded because some of the primitives that we needed, like cryptographic hash functions, didn't exist. And you know, we knew that. We knew that those didn't exist. Uh, I don't even know if we could have found, say, this bachelor's thesis from uh, MIT, you know, pre-internet. We couldn't do a Google Scholar search or who's invented <laughs> a concept we'd never heard of. And nowadays you can do it. Nowadays I don't you can know, do it, but yeah. you'll get too many answers anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think we could have done cryptography even if, correctly, even if we had tried. There was too much. We didn't have any reasonable way to find out. We were not plugged into that community. Some of the stuff we needed didn't exist. The load, yeah, we could have done that better. And if we'd had any clue where it was going to be in three years, we would have. So, Steve, uh, any place that you can be, people can follow your work. I know you teach, so I assume you have a faculty page with a lot of the research you're working on currently. I have an actively maintained web page. Just Google my last name, Bellavin, or Stephen Bellavin, you'll find it. Essentially, all of my papers are online. All of my talks are online. I also have a blog also linked to uh, from my page. That's the best way to find me. I also okay. spend far too much time on Twitter. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So, great. Well, thanks for joining us for History of Networking, Stephen. And, um Subscribe to the History of Networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.